In this episode, Bird Brains get some love, your leafy greens have a web presence, and our special guest Sarah McAnulty cuts our toothus on squids. Welcome to Fax Machine. everyone. My name is M. Costa, and I'm here Zooming along with my co-hosts, Rob. Hello. And Noah. Hi. For another episode of the Fax Machine podcast, which recently turned four years old, that you'd never guess it from our Twitter account. As a little refresher, Fax Machine is a podcast created by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. In that spirit, we invited a special guest to join us who we're so excited to have on the show. She's a PhD specializing in cephalopod immunology, the founder of Skype a Scientist, and an overall science communication extraordinaire. It's Sarah McAnulty. Oh, yeah. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, So I mentioned that you are the founder of Skype a Scientist, and it is eminently very cool. but I was wondering if you could kind of explain to our viewers what it's all about, because I suspect they'd be really into it too. Yeah, absolutely. So Skype a Scientist is a nonprofit organization, and our main goal is to connect people with science via personal connections with scientists. And so we do that in a couple different ways, but the real bread and butter of our program is matching of scientists with classrooms, scout troops, libraries, any group of people that wanna talk to a scientist. And so we do that totally for free. We serve about 11,000 groups a year, and we can match folks with any type of scientist that you can think of. We serve folks all over the world um, in multiple different languages. You can request a scientist um, of any discipline you could think of. And if you have something super specific that you want to talk about, you can go to our website and we have a search tool where you can type in like bees or sharks or whatever it is that you're super into and um that kind <laughs> all the important things bees sharks squid Other. that's yeah. that's the stuff um so if you you know want to talk about something specific you can specifically request that scientist by name if you have something broader like just marine biology you can do that too um and yeah the question the the sessions are all question and answer so um because we really want to form like conversations between uh people and scientists um, I say that as if scientists aren't people, uh, between, <laughs> between people and not, uh, not these like one way deliveries of information, like lectures. We're trying to have a conversation, get to know each other, um, and break down barriers. That is so awesome. And I have to say like a bit prescient given our current sort of like zoom Skype relegated times, um, which yeah. begs the question. And you know, if it's true, Everybody heard it here first. Did you know this was coming? <laughs> no. I. Uh, if, she, if Sarah knew this was coming, she wouldn't have called it Skype a scientist. That's correct. <laughs> I would have called it something else, anything else. Nobody. I just thought that Skype had established such a uh, market presence that it had become like Kleenex. But mm. uh Way to way to ruin a lead, you know. But I've got to say, you've you've really blown my scientist in a box company out of the water because we were just we were shipping them off one a day to go to schools, and now we can't do it anymore. It's a it's a stone cold bummer. Yeah. 
Also, I don't know. I I don't know if this is a coincidence. I think this qualifies. I've been on the 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 match list for like a year, and I've had exactly one match with Skype a scientist, and it went really really well. Um, and then this week, in, in anticipation of this episode, I got quadruple matched. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. That's all luck of the draw. I had no, I pulled no strings. That just is the way it works. It, it's kind of a bit of a uh, when it rains, it pours type situation with Skype a scientist. Uh, and I just want to say, since the lockdown started, one of the most like regular things that has been keeping me sane has been Sarah's amazing Skype a scientist fundraiser, which is like a weekly science trivia. Uh, which is incredible, so good. Uh, and I always go to that. So you should definitely, Sarah. Do you want to give them some information about that? Yeah, it's <laughs> very fun. I okay. So we started it. We're raising uh, money for an endowment to support um, science communication efforts by uh, historically excluded folks in STEM, um, and that can take many different forms. And so we need to kind of hit a, a certain. Uh, amount of money before we can really start giving out grants. And so a fun way to do that is by running science trivia, something that we used to do out at bars back before uh, the world ended. And so uh, we do it every single Thursday, 8 p.m. It's about a 90 minute game. Um, there's about five rounds of trivia. It's you play with your friends in a Zoom room and then we'll sort you into little breakout rooms. And then, yeah, we play and we learn about animals and we share science facts and it's really interactive. Like I build the questions for um, teaching people stuff in addition to testing your knowledge. And then um, often so many scientists go to this game that the audience teaches each other and me just as much as the trivia itself teaches you. Um, and so it's just like, it's very silly and very fun. And the, the group of people who show up are just such a lovable group of science dorks and it's just it's been a heartwarming thing that's come out of this awful awful year i want to say one one thing in particular that i have gotten and i we've and i've tried to bring to our fax machine trivia events that we do sometimes i love your use of the term for the team that is in last place they're not in last place they're the team that has learned the most which i which is like a game changer in trivia terminology <laughs> truly everybody wins if you just didn't sit by yourself on the couch talking to your cat you did something and therefore you have won if you've learned something, so, so you've won. Good. You socialize with somebody, we're having a good time. Um, so everybody wins by coming to trivia. It is amazing the the conversations that pop up after the answers are revealed and the people who are like, um, actually, I know you asked about the shape of wombat poop. And I know that 80% <laughs> of the room told you the shape of wombat poop, but I am a specialist in wombat poop. And like <laughs> just And I would like to tell you the top ten facts about wombat poop. And then everyone's like, let's hear it. I need to know. And then Everybody, wombat poop. <laughs> it's just Honestly, the best that's what community like. oh, for learning it's random a strange stuff. bunch. And we also have a zookeeper in Australia who comes almost every week. And she'll often come like from right outside the zoo and be like do you want to see an animal I'm working with today? And we're all like, yeah. And then she's like, I have a, an alligator or whatever. And we're like, this is the best. This is the best. Yeah. Maybe crocodile there, but whatever. Big lizards and fluffy, cute animals. It's just, it's great. It's great. Yeah. So we'll uh, make sure that uh, with this episode, people can get like a link to that because it's awesome. It's so much fun. Definitely. Uh, and I would love for everyone to join us. Yeah. Highly yes, recommend. For sure. Awesome. All right. So in today's episode, we're tackling facts linked by the theme of communication. Now, our critics might argue that this theme's a little self-referential for a podcast <laughs> whose entire premise is gushing science and knowledge and gratuitous wordplay straight into your cochlea. And to them, we say, Rob, what do you got for us this week? 
<laughs> this week I learned that the long-held theory that the brain doesn't grow new cells was overturned by the science of bird speech. Mm. So um, I think you may be familiar with this kind of coinage that, you know, don't don't lose your brain cells. You never grow them back. That kind of mm. idea. Um, yes. I don't know if that was like a 90s kid thing or just like it was an every kid ever thing. They but were was... really trying to scare us with the anti-drug situation, with the smashing of the uh, eggs, et cetera. So, yeah. So, <laughs> what was that? What was the smashing of the eggs? Oh, this, this is, is your, your brain, brain on, on drugs. drugs. Yeah. And then like hard oh, boiled really egg, or not uh, like not even fried hard egg. They took, yeah, uh, frying pans and were smashing eggs. I think it was <laughs> Rachel Lee Cook um, with a very cute haircut looking unhealthy. And um, I'll never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm so glad that you've already pulled into Reagan era dare because I was going to have to go there and now we're there. So beautiful. <laughs> but um, so th- this was a this is a big, uh, I guess, intellectual movement that your brain is a static object that it, it gets it grows in childhood. You get the cells you get and then you're done. Then you got those cells and you better use them wisely and you best not be smoking that reefer. Uh, and like, you know, stay safe or otherwise you'd be, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose everything. And your brain, uh, on a scientific side, there is a really strong, uh, belief that your brain does not regenerate. Neuro neurogeneration is just not possible and it hadn't been observed. And like, you know, it makes sense because your, your brain kind of stops forming at a certain age and then you're set. And that this was like pretty widely held scientific theory, I would say until into the eighties, uh, there's an Argentinian biologist who who studied birdsong, was actually quite famous for uh, for growing up around birds. His name was Nutbon. And he noticed that in the study of birds, which became his passion and obsession, the size of their brains changed seasonally in this kind of amazing way that in the summers, this region of their brain would actually increase visibly under scans and then decrease in the winter. Um and it was the region of their brain that was associated with birdsong. And so uh, the the theory that he later was able to confirm was that the birds uh, have birdsong, that they're taught at birth. And actually, there are a lot of labs, actually here in New York City, where, where Noah and Em and I are, uh, there are a lot of birdsong labs like scattered all over the place, studying the patterns of birdsongs, the learning habits of birds. Um, so birds learn a song at birth and then have the ability to extemporize and, and kind of make up their own uh, customized song through adulthood, but they maintain that song through life mostly. However, in the summer, when they are most uh, set to using bird song for mating in the spring and summer, their brains grow as they uh, memorize new songs, practice different songs, and use them for different cues. And so, the reason that I think it was excellent that we that we mentioned uh, Reagan era politics is because uh, I'm going to quote Pasco Rakic of Yale University, who said. Read my lips, no new neurons. <laughs> oh my God. He, he, oh. he penned one of the most stirring rebuttals, and he said, you're wrong, your data's wrong, your scans are wrong, there are no new neurons. And over time, him in the camp of no new neuronites um, believed like, okay, maybe you found a weird bird that does it, I bet most birds don't. But it turns out most birds... They do have this kind of behavior in different different parts of their brain. And so migratory patterns can actually change the shape of brains. Foraging and hiding things um, changes the shape of the brain for memory, positional memory. And so many species of birds were later confirmed, but they said, fine, birds are weird. 
mammals definitely don't do this except they do and then throughout the 90s and 2000s all these different mammal species were were shown to exhibit neurogenesis basically new cells growing and um there was a pretty famous study that happened in fred gage's lab out in california in la jolla and this was a study in 2002 i think it was published where they actually confirmed neurogenesis in human brain samples uh which really like set the neuroscience field on its head. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so from, from 1981 where there was like, you know, everyone in the world believed brain cells couldn't just grow from, you know, from an existing adult brain to 2002, where there's evidence that in humans, um, parts of the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain associated with the formation of memory, um, what they actually did was they stained human brains with a dye that only uh, binds in binding, uh, dividing cells. Um, they showed division of cells in adult hippocampus. And this is the kind of thing, I, so I read through this fact once and I totally glossed over the, the irony of this, but if you've worked in a molecular biology lab, does anyone know the the stain that you use? Like the, the DNA binding? BRDU? Daffy or BRDU? BRDU, which is pronounced... Bird. Bird. <laughs> oh, boy. That's good. And actually, if we're using the Welsh alphabet, as I always am, the U is pronounced more like an I, so it's birdie. 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 Ah, that's sweet. Oh. That's so nice. This is excellent closure on that one. Nice. <laughs> so I have what is maybe probably a dumb question, but wait, no, a brain person. Okay, excellent. Can advise. So from my vague recollections from having taken an EMT class this one time, uh, your skull is pretty, pretty packed. Like there's not a lot of extra room for your brain to like swell or for blood vessels to pop. Like if you have any kind of traumatic injury, that's a big concern with your brain trying to like, you know, puff into places where there isn't room for it and causing problems. In terms of the birds and their brain swelling, does that mean like other parts of their brains retract to make room for that? Like I just, or is that there always a little bit of extra room that then in the summer gets filled up? Like, do you, did you, know, you see how that works? Uh, it's interesting. I've never studied bird. I mean, I, I have sort of like occasionally throughout my education sort of had to learn about this sort of stuff and song learning as it, especially as it pertains to like language uh, acquisition and stuff. Um and I certainly know that this is a really interesting feature of bird songs that they do this sort of cyclical, uh, like seasonal sort of massive proliferation and then degeneration of certain areas that are responsible for behaviors that are limited to that season. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's. I suppose it's, I, I just don't know in particular whether or not they do some sort of space saving by like losing other areas or if maybe the the skull is like the shape it needs to be at sort of maximum <laughs> volume yeah. and then it just sort and of loses room or if or if it's possible maybe their skulls are like more plastic and maybe they do do sort of a little phrenology bump you know <laughs> I, I have no idea um it's an interesting question or it's hot in the summer so the skull expands and then yeah, it's cold it <laughs> must be oh my gosh but can you imagine like like bird phrenology for humans like ah oh, no i can see you've been learning welsh based on this bump at the back of your head <laughs> and i would say Dior. <laughs> there we go <laughs> this week i learned that scientists at mit have created wi-fi enabled spinach that can send you emails <laughs> Unfortunately, cancer remains uncured. Um, <laughs> I'm trying. I am. I am completely kidding. I'm complete. Yeah, of course. Am like you know, hurry up. <laughs> but so I'm, I'm totally digs. kidding. 
this has clear humanitarian uh, purpose and benefits, and that is detecting, basically detecting the presence of landmines. Whoa. So essentially, like, plants okay. are constantly sampling and exchanging materials with their environment and various groups have been trying to work out how either to like get plants you know passively take up contaminants that are in like the soil and groundwater or to actually like actively convince plants that they should take up something like to remove it from the environment um so so take the example of a nitro aromatic compound such as tnt uh scientists have actually observed that they will enter the xylem have y'all heard that term before xylem Mm -hmm. Also, I've the, heard the xylem, but I've never heard it. And the phloem. Yeah. The what? Yeah. The xylem yeah. and the phloem. Right. That's all yeah. I know. I've heard the term, yeah, well, but I've never heard it said, enter the xylem, because that sounds much cooler <laughs> than it yes. usually sounds. Enter the yes. xylem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's ex- something explosive enters the xylem, and it's like a Michael Bay movie, <laughs> but plants. <laughs> plants formers. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. That's a rush. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Adrenaline so, just entered your I know. xylem. Seriously. My xylem is coursing with <laughs> TNT. Um, okay. So, listen. The xylem and the phloem are these systems for moving like water and other nutrients around. The xylem of vascular plants is responsible for moving around water and water-soluble nutrients, uh, whereas the phloem, which is spelled P-H-L-O-E-M, is responsible for transporting like sugars, proteins, etc. So anyway, once these compounds get into the xylem, they are like accumulated and eventually transported to other parts of the plant where they get like concentrated, basically. Um, so for example, one group used this transgenic tobacco plant, which had the enhanced ability to soak up mercury in the groundwater. Ooh. And then the plant could be like harvested and disposed of elsewhere. So that was their way. And then they maybe replanted. So that's their way of like leaching mercury out of the soil and trying to decontaminate. So that was like a, an intentionally genetically modified, like yeah, specifically plant. for that purpose. That's yeah. really cool. It's yeah. very, very cool. Love that. And another thing people will do to sort of like, especially if, you know, sometimes there's something like mercury, which just might be all in the groundwater or soil. There's some things maybe they want to uh, identify a specific location or something like a landmine, maybe. Uh, and they can possibly um, make a transgenic plant that has the ability to like when it detects some sort of, you know, explosive compound, they can engineer it to like wilt or uh, turn a different color or even like fluoresce. Uh, so then they can be clear of like knowing where there might be a, a, a you know explosive problem that they need to deal with like very very carefully obviously. So one group in particular Nagata et al also experimented with this tobacco plant which is engineered to change color when it detects TNT. So th- this is like something that's actively being researched and, and put into practice because you know landlines have been you know left over from many wars are a serious problem throughout the world. So that there's that. But as great and as universally beloved and uncontroversial as genetically modified organisms are. <laughs> Um, there was, <laughs> there, was this, uh, there was this 2016 paper in Nature Materials that took a different approach. And so the group of Michael Strano, I think, uh, is how to pronounce that, at MIT, thought, hmm, maybe we can do some sort of nano thing here. And the answer, as it always seems to be, is nano problem. Um, because <laughs> the, the reason they were asking that question is that genetic modification, as, as great as it is, you know, it allows for easy scaling via like the reproduction of these plants. However, you also have this problem where you are introducing a plant that can reproduce a lot and then you have to control that population and it can kind of get unmanageable pretty quickly. Um, there are also only a few plant species that we can easily manipulate in this way, such as like Aridopsis and the tobacco plant. Um, and you 
basically it they if you want to put these plants in environments uh where the problem actually is you have a the issue of invasive species and b the issue that they're not adapted for that particular environment mm. and it might just not be successful when you take it you know from a lab environment out to somewhere in the wild where it's supposed to be dealing with the problem uh, and while you can use these transgenic models to make you know plants communicate detection uh, of some compound using like as i mentioned degreening or wilting or fluorescence there may be better methods out there that we can do the same thing but also make it easier on like the human side of things where you're actually having to like log this change and detect where things have gone wrong i know there's like a weird problem with with bioremediation of like then you have this plant so like say you suck lead out of the soil then what do you do with this plant? Because like people were like, oh, well, then we burned it. And it was like, no. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. That, I mean, that is the issue that was not addressed in this paper. Mm-hmm. They sort of, <laughs> they just say, well, then you can dispose of it somewhere else. in like the next farmer's field, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> feed it to some people or something. Or, you know, I don't know. You definitely don't do that. I'm sure there's all a bunch of papers about the <laughs> disposal of toxic compounds but this one is mostly concerned with concentrating them or detecting them Mm. um and one of the benefits they felt of this like nanomaterials approach was that you can do things like take advantage of the properties of some nanomaterials and use things like infrared telecommunications or some sort of electronic signaling to allow you to detect from a distance say uh you know which for some especially nasty contaminants may be desirable you know um so basically what stano's group did was they developed these fluorescent nanoparticles that were capable of binding to explosive chemicals and thereby changing their fluorescence in a way that was detectable with like really relatively cheap equipment, just like a camera and some sort of filter that could be used with like some sort of uh, like easy to build and cheap computer like Raspberry Pi, that sort of thing. Um, and what's great is that this change in infrared signal can then be detected by this camera and an email is generated to let to like notify scientists that the chemical has been detected. And that I imagine could go something like this. Uh. To whom it may concern. (laughs) I am a vegetable. And please, do not be alarmed, but I am in possession of an explosive chemical. (laughs) Kind rechards. (laughs) Sent from my eye flow. And I can't stop thinking. I can't stop thinking about what other produce would say in emails. (laughs) Like, for example, as persimmon, my last email, or... (laughs) Or e-kale, if you will. Mm-hmm. Or uh, even if, you know, we're sort of going back to uh, previous eras of communication, you could leaf a message after the tone. Um, <laughs> Clove always. Mm. Let's Clove. stock soon. <laughs> Sell a reply. Sell a reply oh. all. Sell <laughs> 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 the, the only one I had left was like, gourd morning. okay so i the thing about this though and our theme about communication is you know this i really wanted this to be like spin it like we've finally decoded spinach language (laughs) Uh, you know but it's really what i mean it's basically what this is is humans using spinach to communicate to ourselves or I mean, mm. you know, it's possible, though, that this is some form of spinach language translator. <laughs> and they've been trying to warn us of, like, the dangerous toxin levels in our soil this whole time. Like some sort of leafy green lassie. <laughs> or, like, like some sort of, oh, I've got more. Like some sort of celery sentinel. Or some sort of bellwether bell pepper. <laughs> or some sort of cornary in a coleslaw mine. <laughs> oh, my God. <sighs> Someone came prepared. <laughs> so... You- so you know what I think it 
I think the wrong people read this like science brief, and that's where like the five G COVID people <laughs> came from. That's probably it. <laughs> and they were like emailing <laughs> toxins in the in the spinach. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to say, I saw uh, like the headline for this story on Twitter, and like props to you for delving in. It's an awesome story, and I love to hear about it because literally, I saw it and I was like. Really, more emails? Screw this! Like, I don't even want to know. <laughs> yeah, Just like, no. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree. So, like, basically, this research has you know obvious and wide ranging applications for cleaning up the world and that we polluted, um, you know, by basically doing just a little more pollution, um, <laughs> which is like basically spraying plants with nanotubes. But it sounds like it could be, you know, worth the extra clutter in our inboxes. Um, however, there is another example of human plant communication involving emails that's worth mentioning. Okay. Hmm. And that is in the city of Melbourne in Australia, which once assigned email addresses to what appears to be all the trees in the city. Um, and the original idea was to, like, give citizens a way to inform the city about, like, broken branches that are, you know, potentially dangerous so they could come and clear them away. But strangely, that's not the kind of emails these trees were getting. So let me give you a few examples. My dearest Olmus, as I was leaving St. Mary's College today, I was struck, not by a branch, but by your radiant beauty. <laughs> you, you must get these messages all the time. You're such an attractive tree. <laughs> There's, there's more. That's nuts. <laughs> there's more. It's, I'm so sorry you're going to die soon. A great start to any email. Uh, <laughs> it, it makes me sad when trucks damage your low-hanging branches. Are you as tired of all this construction work as we are? Um, but there are even messages purportedly written from other trees, which are ostensibly pine pals. Um, <laughs> and the, here's an example. How y'all? Just saying how do. My name is Quercus Alba. You can call me Al. I'm about 300. I think it's going to sort of turn into an accent here, so we're going to do it. I'm, I'm, ready a, for it. I'm about 350 years old and live on a small farm in northeastern Mississippi, United States of America. I'm about 80 feet tall with a trunk girth of about 16 feet. I'm going to say that differently. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Classic white oak confidence. Right there. <laughs> Big bark energy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's coming. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm about 80 feet tall with a trunk girth of about 16 feet. I don't travel much, although I haven't moved since I was an acorn. <laughs> I just I just stand around and provide a perch for local birds and squirrels. Have a good day. <laughs> Which is really cute. And I, I kind of like that, you know, we've, we've given, you know, <laughs> humans not only a way to contact trees and express their appreciation for the you know, for, for their role in keeping us breathing, but also giving a way for trees to communicate. Um, although I am a little concerned that this may be the beginning of the end of the world from a tree revolution. I'm sure they do a better job than we're doing. So I'm, I'm in full support yeah. of handing it over to the tree. They'd be, they'd be much better at running the country. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. So... Let's talk about squid, my favorite thing to talk about. But really, one of the reasons that I like squid so much is because of the way that they communicate and all the different ways that communication sort of interweaves itself through squid biology. And so first, let's take a sort of zoomed out approach to looking at squid, and uh, as opposed to what we'll do zooming in a lot closer, looking at how animals and bacteria talk to one another. So first of all, squid, amazing 
color changing, beautiful, live all over the world in all oceans, the best animals there are in my not on, not on land so much. All over yeah. the world in oceans. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> come on fair. land, then I'll be impressed. Okay, fine. Well, <laughs> come, come fight me on land, squid. <laughs> fine. They're gonna be waiting for me next time I go to the beach. Aren't they, they will. They'll be <laughs> lingering. Anyway, let's get back to the squid communication. So, squid have the ability to change color at the speed of thought. That being said, they don't use sound to communicate because they don't really hear particularly well. Some of them barely hear at all, really. Um, And so what instead of using language like we do, they use color change. And so inside their skin, there's multiple color changing layers of skin, depending on the species um, of both squid and cuttlefish. So on the top layer, we have what are called chromatophores. And chromatophores come in a couple different flavors. We've got like brown ones and yellow ones and red ones. Um, and they're basically like little tiny uh, head of a pin balls of uh, pigment that are surrounded by muscles that can, those muscles then expand and kind of pull the beach ball into a big flat pancake. And you can see the color when it's in pancake form instead mm. of little tiny uh, sphere form. Um, and then under that layer, there are cells in some species in some areas of their body called iridophores. Iridophores are always like on. Um, you can't take the color away, but the color changes between like red, um, purpley, bluey to like yellow, green. So all of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, so basically they're like little pancake stacks and the shape of the the pancake stack determines the color that's reflected back at oh. you. And if so you is ever this like st- structural color? This is structural color, yes. And oh. but they use there's like some things that like like there's a lot of plants that use structural color and there's a lot of like insects or whatever yes. bacteria that use like fluorescence or some sort of like pigment or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this uses both. This uses both. Yeah. So the chromatophores awesome. are pigment and the iridophores are structural. And that's what kind of gives squid their like shimmery sparkly look. Um, That's all the iridophores. And then some cephalopods, like cuttlefish, not all cuttlefish, but some of them, have a third type of cell called the leucophore. Leucophores are like the whitest white possible in the animal kingdom. If you shine white light at them, they're giving you white straight back. And a lot of companies that are looking at like making e-readers that have like a real white paper background, we're looking at um, inspiration from leucophores. So using all of these uh, layers all together, that's how a squid or octopus or cuttlefish puts on the pattern that it wants to put on. And a lot of times these patterns are just used for, for camouflage, for trying to blend into their background to not get eaten. But in squid, a relatively more social animal than the octopus, um, they're also using that color change for communication. And one of my favorite examples of this is in uh, one of my favorite species of squid, the Caribbean reef squid. If you've been uh, swimming in fl- anywhere from like Florida down um, I don't even know how far south they go, but pretty darn far south into South America. Um, they hang out in groups of like three to 15. They're like about like a foot long at the most. Um, they're beautiful red. They hang out in little lines and they often will line up in size 
uh, order, which is very cute. So the <laughs> smallest ones will be on one side and the biggest ones will be on the other. And some scientists have hypothesized that this is because the little ones don't want to get the crap beaten out of them by the big ones. Oh. And so it's just <laughs> helpful for them to kind of like size stratify that way. Um, they're incredibly curious animals. They're kind of like sister species, uh, sepia toothless, less Iana, out in um, Japan and all over the Indo-Pacific, Australia, et cetera. Very similar behaviorally in that they're like, when you dive with them, they're like, they come right up to you. They're very curious. They're like, who are you? What are you up to? They're very cute and fun to be in the water with. And so one of the things that I just think is so super neat about these animals when it comes to communication is they will signal to one another whether basically they like each other or not, in a sense. So <laughs> they're just like flipping each other off. <laughs> giving them giving them one tentacle (laughs) honestly it's kind of like that so they will um show another squid a full like stark white body pattern if they're kind of like signaling aggression at them and they'll signal this like more reddish brown color if they like them and so usually when you see them in these little like lines they're everybody's kind of just like reddish brown hanging out but when they pair up to mate the females, for the most part, will be that brown all over the place. But the males have to not only signal to the female, like, hey, I like you, things are good, but they also kind of need to defend their, like, turf, kind of, with this female from all the other males around. And the way they do that is they split their body pattern right down the middle. It kind of looks like a Harlequin sort of uh, look. It's so spooky and fun. They signal positive body pattern to the female and then angry body pattern of stark white <laughs> to everybody else. And there's this really delightful video um, on YouTube of the male like going behind the female and then going to the other side of her. And when he's directly behind her, he, he swaps the body patterns uh, so that she always sees like friendly, positive vibes wow. from her. That's so cool. But there are like all sorts of really cool examples of squid using color to communicate. There's this one species of cuttlefish um, that lives, I believe, off Japan. And when, when the male is trying to get uh, the attention of the female, um normally they're like this pretty long skinny uh cuttlefish compared to the more like rugby ball shaped uh (laughs) like standard cuttlefish uh your average cuttlefish um these are kind of long and skinny and normally their little arms just sort of hang in front of their face and when it's time to um kind of basically impress the female the male will take his arms and make them really pointy and really long. He'll like stretch them out as long as he can. He looks really spiky and silly. And then he puts on like this wild strobe light pattern, like flash, 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 like very, very quickly. And I was at this uh, cephalopod biology conference, I think back in 2018. Um, And when the scientists showed the video, literally, we lost it. We like, like, twin <laughs> biologists were screaming. We were like, oh my God. <laughs> it, I mean, I don't care how long you've been studying squid. When they do something fun, you gotta scream. Like, all, like, all 200 of us were just like losing it. It was awesome. It was so cool. So, anyway, that's one of the things they do. And if the females, like, I was not impressed by this strobe situation, try again later. Um, <laughs> he doesn't get to mate with her. Well, when it comes to intentional stunning of other organisms, uh, cuttlefish use these chromatophores 
to confuse crabs and shrimp. So they do what's called passing cloud. And like the poster squid for this <laughs> Wait, is um, pa- passing cloud. Passing cloud <laughs> is the is the like official scientific name for this. It's not farts, okay? It's <laughs> like it's a hypnotist wheel. Who dealt it's, it? Who dealt yeah. the cloud? It was the, it was the broad club cuttlefish. So if, if I was working with a cephalopod, and the term passing cloud was around. I would a hundred percent assume that was at least the inking part. Like <laughs> not even <laughs> little bubbles just come up from the cuttlefish. Aww. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. <gasps> Flashing lights. Oh, it wasn't me. <laughs> look, look over here. Look over here. Oh, what happened? <laughs> What's that smell? So basically they take their chromatophores and make black bands go across their body and they move that band from like their what you would might imagine their butt would be toward the ends of their arms. And this one cuttlefish, the broad club cuttlefish is like uh, particularly famous for doing this. And they take two of their arms and kind of like put them out sideways so that in addition to the like color show that you see, they're also just like in a very weird like spaceship body pattern. It's like very (laughs) strange looking and just looking at their body shape is kind of disorienting. And then on top of that, you have this like hypnotist wheel effect. Um, This was on, I think, Blue Planet or Planet Earth, um, the more recent one. and it is wild looking. And so, yeah, they the crab will be like, what is going on? And the next thing you know, they grab them and it's a meal. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's so there's so much to say about cephalopod behavior. We could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. So let's talk about another reason to talk about communication when it comes to cephalopods. And that's uh, the model that I used for graduate school to study how animals and bacteria talk to each other. Um, that's the Hawaiian bobtail squid, which is arguably the, one of the cutest animals <laughs> in the world. They're about the size of like a key lime, like not quite lime size, like small lime. Oh. They're very cute. They're very small and they're rainbow colored and they're nocturnal. Oh. They're just the cutest little and their eyes are we just live for the night i know their <laughs> eyes are most of it's their party, head dude. it's whoa oh, wow. strobe they literally <laughs> look like little disco balls they're, they're so cute they're very cute their eyes couldn't be bigger and uh what's <laughs> the reason that scientists have been studying them for over 30 years is because they have this partnership with a glowing bacterium called Vibrio fisheri. And so this bioluminescent bacteria is stored in this specialized pouch that uh, is called the light organ. And so this, the like the morphology of the light organ is so super cool. Um, but in short, it's basically like a little ball where, of bacteria that's surrounded by uh, reflective tissue that allows the squid to sort of control where the light goes. And then the ink sac around that, like a big oven mitt, um, or really like baseball mitt with the the baseball being like the bacteria ball. And um, the the squid kind of controls the light with between the like mirror like reflective tissue and uh, using the ink kind of like a shutter. That's how they can control how much light comes out. And they're able to detect how much light is in their environment. Like if it's a bright moonlit night, no clouds, full moon, they're letting quite a bit of that light out. If it's a cloudy night, new moon, they're really covering most of it because they want predators that are swimming below them. Instead of seeing a little squid shaped silhouette above them, they want to match the light coming down from above. And so it's all about camouflage for them. This isn't like actively communicating with other squid. This is just uh-huh. hiding. Okay. And so um, 
what's really nice about this system is that this light organ just has one species of bacteria living inside of it. In that organ, there might be different strains of that species, but really like compared to a mammalian gut, it's simple. It's much easier than a lot of other animals, um, kind of bacterial communities. And so we really just have like two members talking to each other, the bacteria and the squid. And so we use that to help us understand how these beneficial relationships are kind of mediated. And so um, we are looking for what chemicals the squid uses to talk to the bacteria and vice versa, and how these uh, sort of relationships are initiated and then maintained healthily so that we can understand how um, animals like us um, can have be healthy with our gut microbes. And there's all sorts of really cool stuff that's been done with the squid. Like these squid literally got sent to space um, because we wanted to understand, like, if we were to have uh, human babies in space, would they get colonized with their gut microbes the same as we do on Earth? Oh. Like, does microgravity affect how um, how bacteria get in us and, and sort of establish these relationships that we're going to have for our lives? Um, were, and so, yeah. these the squid that got vertigo in space? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I've, I've read those squid. Love those, <laughs> love those squid. Love those squid. Love those squid. And all sorts of weird stuff happens to bacteria in space. Like they um, will upregulate their virulence factors, which is like the stuff that makes you sick. And it's like, okay, well, why would they do that? We don't know. Oh, that's so neat. So I might be misremembering, but like anglerfish, sort of like little danglers, that's also yes! bacteria. And it's, right? the, it's same like the same kind of bacteria. Okay. It's a different strain. That's what I was going yeah, to it's, ask. It's a different strain. And that. So, okay, when bacteria become associated with animals, sometimes, um, particularly in cases when um, the bacteria is handed down from animal generation to generation, their genome gets chopped smaller and smaller and smaller because they really don't need as much of it anymore. But the, the bacteria that lives in the squid, it's living in squid, but it's also, it needs to be able to survive out in the ocean as well. So it needs those genes for both those scenarios because it's constantly switching back and forth. So it needs to be an independent bacterium, um, unlike the stuff that lives in the anglerfish, which uh, actually, you know what? I don't know if parents, I think they might acquire it from the environment too. Maybe we don't know. I don't know if we know. I don't know if we've done that experiment because it's tough to get anglerfish. Fair. Yeah, well, I was wondering about that just because, like, the environments that's inhabit that are inhabited by, like, the squid versus yeah. the anglerfish must be so different that, so that it's the same strain of bacteria. Vibrio fisheri. I don't think the anglerfish strain can get into the squid. Um, but there's also Vibrio fisheri okay. that lives in little, like, under eye pouches in something called uh, the pinecone fish. And so <laughs> that, like... I can't remember now if it if it just barely gets in or if it can't get in. Um, and then there's there's another one in a squid that lives in Australia, and that one can get into the Hawaiian one, but not as well as the Hawaiian one gets into the Hawaiian squid. So it's like a lot of different animals have Vibrio fisheri in them. But like w whenever we're talking about bacteria species, things are messy. Like calling a bacterium a species is not simple because strain two strains of the same species can be wildly different from one another and unable to do a task the same and and this is like one of those examples like you really need a hawaiian strain to go into a hawaiian square
liquid without things getting a little wonky. Yeah. Bacteria family reunions are tough because they're so different. Puts a lot of puts a lot of strain on their relationship. That was a good joke. Just, that was a good joke. Happen in slow motion. <laughs> All right, so we've arrived at our quiz, uh, which in sort of its tangential connection to the themes it's meant to have, um, I originally devised as communication um, sent to and received between organisms and realized that's just communication. So the quiz (laughs) is the theme and we're just gonna roll. Question one, (laughs) what organism whose name comes from the Greek word for a small staff or cane communicates via phenomenon called quorum sensing. Can I say it? Can I say it? Oh, go for it, yeah. Yeah. Bacteria. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I did not know that about the etymology. Yeah. um, That's interesting. So uh, while bacteria, the word itself, and its singular form bacterium are Latin, uh, it's actually derived from a Greek word, bacterion. Um, So it was coined by German naturalist, microscopist, etc. ist, uh, Christian Gottfried Ehrenberg in 1838. um, And he named them such because the first bacteria to be viewed through a microscope were rod-shaped. Can I add a little fun fact here? Of course. Okay, so when the bacteria first enter the squid, they don't glow because there's like only a couple of them and it wouldn't be enough to be useful for the squid and making light is very energetically expensive. And so mm-hmm. they don't want to waste their energy on something that's not, they don't need to do. Mm-hmm. And so they use quorum sensing to know when to turn on the light. Mm. Oh, that's cool. And once they like sense enough of their buddies are around using the quorum sensing molecule, they're like, oh, it is time. There are enough of us. And then they turn the light on. Is the squid involved in that at all? Is it like, wait, like, does it only start pumping in resources when there's enough of them to like light up? Or something? I don't or is- know if the squid knows how much bacteria there is other than the circadian rhythm, because every mm. dawn they're like squirting the bacteria out. And so uh. they're like, well, bedtime. And then they are feeding them different things at different times of the day. So like, so why do the bacteria bother lighting up? That's, I guess, my oh, question. Oh, they need to light up for the squid to be able to camouflage. And if they don't light up, the squid oh, kick them out. Eating. Yep. Oh. Well, <laughs> we don't know. That's the, deal. Don't, the squid, yeah, well, yeah, they, they go into a, a lizard fish's stomach, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but when they first, when the, when the bacteria first gets in, even if they're able to like handle the gauntlet that is required to get into the light organ, if they yeah. don't glow, the squid are like, you're no good to me. And they kick them out. And, and I feel like this is like a classic example of like it. You can write like intention and meaning on everything, but it's really just like, yo, we evolved this very precise way of living, and like that's why we alive. And like, yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, it works <laughs> because if it didn't work, we'd be dead. Yeah. Yes. We've we've really boxed ourselves into a corner with this whole evolution thing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, and just so, yeah, so it's rods. Like a, oh, there you go. <laughs> Um, and yeah, just as a quick explainer, so quorum sensing um, is basically like, so individual bacterium can like release uh, sort of signaling molecules or like little chemical messages into their environment. Um, and quorum sensing is when there are enough bacteria all together releasing these molecules and the concentration gets above a certain threshold that they all basically receive these signals and then behave in a sort of synchronous way based on what the signal is. So to uh, form biofilms, release virulence factors like uh, Sarah was talking about earlier, and and I guess light up too. So very cool. Good job, bacteria. Okay. Ooh, I feel ooh. like humans use, <laughs> this is such a dumb thing. You can feel free to cut it. Humans use quorum sensing on the subway 
for like a- <laughs> asshole behavior. And it's like if there's too few people on the subway, you're not going to you're not going to sit next to anyone. You're just going to stand. And then this like moment on the subway hits and you're like, I'm going to sit in this person's lap. I'm going to like stand right in their face. I'm going to shove to get in the door because I've hit the like asshole quorum. And now I have to be a jerk. <laughs> Asshole quorum reached. I like it. Question two. What organism, perhaps best known for communicating with their environment via biosonar, was recently discovered to do a lot of quarreling? Well, quarreling. So they do a lot of, I guess, fighting. Or bickering Um, might be. Do you know, Rob? Uh, um, I'm just thinking biosonar, and I think bats right away. Correct. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. what I was thinking. I was yes. like, bats or whales? Mm. There's the only two sonar yeah. or dolphins, I guess. Mm. And whales would never fight. They're so nice. <laughs> <laughs> Except for so, orcas. So bats, so bats get into dolphins. like bat brawls? <laughs> they do. So uh, this is particular to fruit bats, or at least a study that really? was focused on fruit bats. Yes. Um, so fruit, fruit bats, they do make noises. They kind of squeak. Um, and it sounds very cute, but actually, from what the study is showing, they might just be raging whenever they do that. Um, so this was a study from 2016 when researchers monitored 22 captive Egyptian fruit bats for 75 days and analyzed approximately 15,000 different vocalizations um, using a specially adapted voice recognition system. So basically, by observing these bats and matching the squeaks to the bats that made them, uh, the scientists captured that bats seemed to address individuals within the, within their group using particular sounds. So like, you are this bat. I'll make this noise at you, which is pretty cool. Um, not a ton of animals do that. Um, mm, and now we know yeah. that bats are one of them. Uh, but also, um, 60% of the sounds that the researchers captured, um, they said could be uh, classified into four categories from the paper. Quabbling over food jostling over position in their sleeping cluster, uh, protesting over mating attempts, or arguing when perched in close proximity to each other. So basically, (laughs) if you hear a bat chattering, 60% of the time it's because it's pissed at someone. (laughs) (laughs) And they get to fight their battle bats. Yes. After they're done yelling, they pick up little berries and throw them at each other. You know what that's called? (laughs) What? Get off my lawn. It's fruit battery. That was really good. You're all very good at, at puns, and I'm just sitting here like, uh, like just like watching it happen. That's, you know, it's, it's part of it. So is everybody who's listening. Oh, good, good, good. We hope. <laughs> Question three: What animals communicate using infrasound or sound below the range of human hearing to signal herd movements and find mates over long distances? Ooh. And I do have a hint for this one. Oh, Elephants. If folks want it. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> nice. You didn't even need it. Oh I gosh. knew it. I was Love like, it. I know this. Come on, Sarah. <laughs> so yes, the information for this fact also came from elephantlisteningproject.org. Um, but well, first I'll start with. Well, I guess yeah. I'll come back to the hint because the hint is really cool, and I do, do still want to mention it. That also that so. sounds like an elephant support group a little bit. All in favor of. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you feel. Um, So, yes, all adult elephants. (laughs) Feeling a little gray. (laughs) I might be tough on the outside, but on the inside. (laughs) 
So yes, all adult elephants can make these so-called infrasonic calls, um, and they're estimated to be detectable to elephants um, on average 50 square kilometers from the caller, which is pretty amazing, mm. though this, these distances can vary with the humidity and the environment that they're in, whether there are any other like trees and structures in the way. Mm. Um, but a few kind of just neat sort of little tidbits that I pulled from this website and the studies they describe. Um, so apparently, although, as I mentioned, we as humans can't hear these calls, when you observe elephants, um, when they have their ears just kind of like out and flat, they're in listening mode. But when their ears are flopping, they're communicating. <laughs> so even though we can't hear them, <laughs> they're just, we can tell the ear, they're ears like, flopping. Hi! Now, what the listeners can't back. see is that our hands are up by our ears, just flopping around. <laughs> Hello! Just imagine Car. full Dumbo motion. Yes. Oh, I missed the screen cap opportunity. Um, but also, this little tidbit is just really interesting to me, and I didn't find like literature for this, but... Hopefully it's out there or in the works and is really true. Um, but they mentioned some observations of elephants in extremely uh, dry regions of Namibia um, by a group of elephant scientists. Um, and basically their observations suggest they might also use um, infrasound produced by distant thunderstorms to actually like seek out water during drought conditions, Ooh, which is pretty cool. wild. So they can pick them up as well and be like, oh, it's going to rain over there. Let's Let's go get that. So, um, also, just to say, elephants, they're vibing. Like, uh, <laughs> they are always oh, vibing. <laughs> just, just the thought of that makes me very happy. Question four. Uh, what burrowing rodent, also known as a sand puppy, as I found out <laughs> for this question, and it's the best. But anyways, what burrowing rodent uh, was recently discovered to have intracolony dialects, uh, which allow individuals to recognize their kin? First of all, I, I think I would have known it. It's prairie dogs, right? Oh, it's not prairie dogs. Meerkats? But anyway, Meerkats? Um, no. But, but just the, the sand puppy, I thought, was like prairie dog. Uh, also, this is kind of like a direct. Dang, okay. Also, what was the adjective? Because it sounded like you were said burrowing. Burrowing. Okay, I heard broing. Like <laughs> I heard it too, but I thought about it, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Burrowing. So, okay, so let me tell you what I did. I was like, broing, like... Like hanging out, drinking beers, like crushing forties on the street corner. I don't. And I was like, New York City rats. <laughs> they already have the pizza. Like yeah. <laughs> well, halfway there. So, like, why I thought it was prairie dogs. I think that prairie dogs have a quite extensive, like, sort of language adjacent system where they have like a they have like different you know specific call slash words for like different adjectives about people like you know height and color of clothing and male female humans even um, and a lot of stuff so that's honestly where i thought this was going because there's there's loads of stuff about that so okay could you read the question because i was off on the wrong track yeah yeah especially with the dog related name i'm now briefly very disturbed knowing that like prairie dogs can talk about me (laughs) (laughs) like see that one (laughs) Uh, okay but yeah so the question again was uh, what burrowing rodent, also known as a sand puppy, was recently discovered to have intracolony dialects, which allow individuals to recognize their kin? Shrews? Closer. Voles? It's probably about equally as close. <laughs> I don't think I don't think moles are rodents, are they? Moles? The, one of those, that word 
is mole? one of the words in the Naked animal. mole rats? Yes! <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. Um, so yeah, this was a recent study in the journal Science, like I think January of 20, like very, very recent, January 2021. Um, basically, young pups uh, learn their colony's dialect as they grow up, as instituted by the colony's queen. Apparently, naked mole rat colonies have queens. Very cool. Um, but this is important because naked mole rats are blind and they can't see each other. So if they encounter another naked mole rat, like as they're burrowing around on the ground, they have no way to visually see whether it's a friend or foe. Whoa. Um, mm. So they talk it's to like each other passwords. and say like, hey, I recognize your accent. You're cool. And then that's how they know they're okay. Um, I love that. Question five. Uh, what also famously poor-sitted animals communicate personal information like age, gender, whether they're looking for more territory, or whether they're looking to mate through their poo? Poor-sighted. Which I didn't know about them, but I guess they don't see Oh, very you well. didn't know that? Because I would have guessed one that's pretty famously poor-sighted. So this, that does help a little bit. I might have said moles. No. Uh, we are out of, not know, a rodent. Like... We, are, we are done with the rodents. Not a okay. rodent. <laughs> Bad vision. Bad vision. But maybe, maybe you might, you might not necessarily. It's maybe yeah. not one of the first things you think about. Yeah, them. I more so mentioned it because I was like, "Huh, really?" So I wouldn't like. Yeah. Okay. Um, more, more famous for their capunication. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> not my. Best. Yes, I'm trying to think of like another clue that I could get. Makes it easier uh, to communicate with other feces. <laughs> <laughs> my God. So, okay, so they have bad sight. I mean, you probably know dogs can't see very well, and I imagine that lots of animals communicate with their poop, right? Like, I mean, the scents that are in there probably are very have a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know that giraffes communicate with their pee. Okay, get into the right part of the world. Rhinoceros. And- Yes! Oh my God! Yes! <laughs> they do the they do the um. No, that's hippo. That's hippos. Oh, okay. And it, okay. And it rules, and we should be talking about that. <laughs> so, it rules. What? Okay, so hippos will like poop, but windmill their tails as they're pooping <laughs> to like, like throw the poop everywhere. It's <laughs> disgusting it's and so hilarious. Cool. Why? Because they want uh, their buddies to smell them, so they know. Ah, is it for a mating? Idea. Okay. Is it a mating I, smell thing? I think it's. I think it's territorial as well. Territorial. Like they want to cover their scent over the most area. I can area. imagine that being effective. Just but like, I'm gonna stay so many, away from the poop singing. <laughs> so many amazing videos of like <laughs> zookeepers and even just like zoo goers being caught in like this <laughs> in a poop like, rain. whirlwind. Of, like, oh. It's like it's like shit literally hitting the fan. That's <laughs> that's it. That's literally what it is. <laughs> Oh my god. Wow. <laughs> well, relatedly, Sorry, so it's not that. It's not that. Yes, relatedly, uh, yeah, South African white rhinos also talk shit. Um, <laughs> and they do so through perusing communal dung piles that they create. Uh, also, they're called middens, the second appearance oh, of middens hey. on this podcast. Love middens. Still not the gloves, but I will always hear it that way. <laughs> so, um, Rob, what's a midden real quick? Because you're definitely going to oh, need yeah. to call that back. Yeah, so middens, um, actually from from our uh, sci-fi trivia episode, is mm-hmm. a uh, a... A, a waste pile, typically where humans used to put... I'll say. <laughs> yeah, in, in this case, explicitly. Uh, but it's where humans uh, kind of archaeologically would put their remains of trash, litter, like intentionally placed in one place, or in like the most specific and best known cases, it's where humans would put oyster shells after they had eaten them. There'd be these massive uh, piles and sometimes like whole just like, you know, acres of oyster shell. 
but it's a rhinos have a rhino culture has a long way to go (laughs) before to move from shit to oysters so (laughs) well i don't know they learn quite a bit from the shit but but uh yes to um give a little more info here so yes so basically they sort of peruse through these communal dung piles for chemical for chemical cues that convey among other things basically the contents of their gender profiles, if they had them. Um, so I mentioned age, gender, uh, whether they're like looking for more territory, whether they're like dominant members of their colony, um, and whether they're looking to get it on. Um, I've seen it compared to uh, sort of like a bulletin board or social media kind of like adjacent mechanism. But really, I think everyone missed the opportunity to just call it what it is, shitposting. Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm wondering. So you even mentioned that like they could signal their sort of dominant status. Do are there any examples? I mean, I wonder how like what a how faithful of a signal that is. So like, could you when you take a big shit (laughs) as a rhino? Sorry, I probably could have said that differently. Sorry. When you when you when you leave a packet of information for the next rhino, um, and could you even if you weren't like the lead rhino, could you somehow like alter your sort of like hormones or whatever or some is there some control over whether the the sort of profile you present and like could that maybe you know if like another rhino didn't really feel like maybe they were like ooh that's a really tough rhino even though it really isn't they might not come over and try to test your boundaries could you commit a it... faux poo <laughs> <laughs> that'd be a great rhino game show <laughs> true or poo <laughs> I didn't see anything about that, so I'm not sure. Um, I know that researchers looked into this by, like, basically dropping, like, plant poos that were just fake poo that they spiked, like, various pheromones into, like, rhino pheromones, to see if they could trick the rhinos into being like, oh, like, this female actually wants to hang out. Like, and it, it, it worked. So they know at least that much. But whether they have any agency in a, what they dump, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's how rhinos do it. Maybe they take a poop and then they reach out with a pipette and just like add some poop. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's more like it. <laughs> I just like the idea of a very like desirable male rhino taking a shit. and then, You do, huh? And <laughs> but then everyone else has to wipe right. <laughs> oh my god oh it's so funny <laughs> alright question six what aquatic organism among various other barely believable feats communicates with its buds its friends uh, mm. by reflecting and detecting polarized light it's buds is that like a deliberate play on words no oh, okay. <laughs> Hmm. Just friends. It's chums there if you want to keep it aquatic. Oh, that's a, sh- oh, that's so a shark kid. Is... So you gotta... <laughs> okay. Well, squid have the ability to uh, affect the polarization of the light that reflects off of them. Um, and so when you use a camera to look at squid that can detect polarized light, like you have to color change it sort of for us to actually see it because we can't see polarized light. Um, but they have additional patterns on them and we don't really know what they're used for and so um long story short it's a mystery but um we we think maybe they're communicating with each other using uh the polarized light that is so cool well we also think that of mantis shrimp oh Oh, yeah Yeah, they are a little shiny yeah oh they these guys they look ridiculous under polarized light microscopy yes they do yeah So these guys, with their 16 color receptors in their eyes and their tiny underwater sonic booms, like, 
whatever, show-offs, <laughs> can also apparently communicate um, by bouncing polarized light off of their bodies at each other. Um, so they have these bright blue kind of like feathery-looking appendages called maxillipeds. Um, and these structures can scatter polarized light in a way that we've actually never seen anything do before. Again, show-offs. Um, and produce visual signals that only mantis shrimp can see because of their special eyes. The, yeah. specialized special, special eyes yes precisely <laughs> nice. um but yeah the paper that uh found this is titled a shape in isotropic reflective polarizer in a stomatopod crustacean and i was like wow cool. what <laughs> if you say so <laughs> love at first sight whatever yeah <laughs> but yeah mantis shrimp what what can't they do what can't they really they do? someone tell me my <laughs> i just i want to see them be humble okay question seven <laughs> To keep their larvae fed and protected, uh, Fingaris rebelli butterflies mooch off of what insects by imitating the sounds of their queen? So the insects they mooch off of. Mm. To clarify. Well, termites. Ooh, termites. Interesting. Ooh. Different uh, animals with queens. I, I would have yes. gone for like some sort of bee where they steal the honey or something. But termites also have that kind of interesting. That vibe. They do. Yeah. I might... So I might... I might throw my head into a wasp family just to differentiate, but I don't know. I can't think of any. Okay. So oh, those... it could be ants. Ants as well. Ooh, is uh, it like it's ants? Yeah. Ants. Okay. okay. <laughs> I was like, we're running them. Like there are uh, lots of insects. Please, of, damn. <laughs> of the three of us, of the three of us, Sarah was the closest. Yes. <laughs> With uh, termites, it seems closer to ants than Lepidoptera. Totally. I I hate to point out. I think wasps are actually very close to ants, but termites. Oh, are... they're hymenoptera, yeah. aren't they? Ooh. Oh, oh, right. Of course. Not, yeah. Not that I'm fighting I'm sorry, for I think cred, but <laughs> I said I said, yeah, I did say butterflies, and I just rem- I sort of like retconned you to have said moths. <laughs> but, in my head, but you're totally right. Wasps are much closer. Nice, yes. Um, so yeah, so this uh, blue butterfly native to Western Europe is a brood parasite, which is a term that I'm more familiar with in terms of birds, but I guess these guys can do it too. So basically the way they work is when they're caterpillars, they chill out in trees and eat leaves, and then when they're ready to metamorphose, they crawl to the forest floor and secrete chemicals that essentially are like load ant. Um, and they also make very specific ticking noises that sound like the ant queen. And the cool thing is Ooh. that like the study that found this out basically found out that, you know, these are noises that we know that ants make to communicate to each other, but worker ants and queen ants have very distinctive patterns of clicking. Like they have, uh, they hit different frequencies basically. So these guys not only learned how to imitate ants, but also how to imitate the queens specifically so they can get maximally pampered by the ants. So the ants hear them and are like, oh, my queen, and then feed them and like defend (laughs) predators. And yeah, it's great. It's a pretty good deal. That's awesome. Yeah. Question eight. What does the song Across the Universe, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, and a series of theremin performances all have in common? Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. That was me being a theremin. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this ooh. one's a bit tricky. So um, it can't be lyrical. Communication. Yeah. And what was, so it was theremin, I'm sorry, theremin uh, Across the Universe and what else? Beethoven's and Beethoven's Sixth. sixth. Pastoral? Uh, I can't recall. It's been in between my two favorites, so I'm kind of like, eh. Mm. <laughs> um, sent to space. Oh, yes, sent to space. Voyager. Yes, mm. not on the Voyager. Oh. Like literally beamed okay. or broadcast just into space. Oh wow! Off of Earth. Yeah. Isn't that true of all 
sort of our like radio communication. It's just like one hundred percent of anything that's ever been on the radio. We have well, like, isn't there, I think there's like a radio shell that's like expanding at the speed of light going out from Earth. There are people who like mapped that. So, so you were right to include all these random things, and the list <laughs> it was not exhaustive. It's true. Well, these are things that were notably like being out of space. One of them was right. to um, uh, the crew of Gemini Seven. The other two were into deep mm. space. So, like, very intentionally, like we are launching this into space. Hear it. someone will hear it. Yeah, exactly. Was this like so? Was the theremin part of like SETI or something? Like they were just being yes. like, "Stay away!" Although, <laughs> yes. Although here. apparently, uh, so SETI is searching for extraterrestrial yeah. life. Um, for messaging, it's METI. So it's oh. S two and M. There's like a term for it. Um, oh, but yes, but to go through each one. So yeah, Beethoven sixth um, was the first broadcast to a spacecraft. Uh, that was in December 1965 by Houston radio station to the crew of Gemini 7 as they were orbiting the Earth. Um, the theremin music, so this one's kind of wonky. Um, it was called, well, the title of the pieces were, uh, or so for the theremin music, uh, they were compiled into a piece known as the first theremin concert for extraterrestrials. Hmm. Um, <laughs> these were seven theremin compositions encoding information uh, that were beamed out into deep space as part of the Teenage Message, or TAM, um, beamed from a Ukrainian radio telescope in 2001. I will say for this, which just tickles me, so it was called the Teenage Message um, because all of its components were composed by Russian teens. <laughs> it was like hmm. uh, just sort of like a campaign they ran in pre- preparation for this and i just love that like if we did a gen z version you know we would be just shooting tiktok shanties into outer space well done great quiz you guys killed it on the quiz fantastic yay a good the best quiz is the one where like there are more right answers in addition to your <laughs> answers and it's just like oh t- tell me <laughs> teach me please that's how i feel all the time at science after our trivia with uh, skype a scientist we learn as much yeah. as we teach. It's great. All right. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to our sort of like revival first episode recorded in 2021 episode of Fax Machine. Um, and thank you so much to our guest, Sarah, for joining us. This was a blast. I learned so much about squid. And honestly, now all I want to do is learn more about squid because just psychedelic hugs. Or that's cuttlefish. <laughs> that's all I pictured with the cuttlefish. Psychedelic hugs. That's <laughs> just great. psychedelic hugs. Um, but yes, for our listeners, since you mentioned all sorts of awesome stuff at the top of the show, where can they find you? Where can they tune into the, all the awesome programming that you do? Check out skypeascientist.com to sign up for our program. Follow us on Instagram at uh, skypeascientist, uh, on Twitter at skypescientist. You can follow me, Sarah McNulty, at Sarah Mac Attack on all social media platforms that I'm on. Sarah with an H, M-A-C-K, Attack. Um, and I always tweet about trivia. Also, you can always find our trivia links on um, my Instagram and also on Skype a Scientist Instagram. That's when we have the weekly thing. Um, and once you have the link, you have it forever because uh, it's always the same. Awesome. Nice. Uh, and if you want to check out more content from us at Fax Machine, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. Um, and we're individually on social media. I'm at underscore EM Costa. Noah. At Arcs and Sciences. And Rob. At Sweatervest SCI. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyberson, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyberson. The theme music is by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.